I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So Todd's out this week. He's joined his family for their uh, annual hunting excursion that involves, you know, remote camping and sub-zero temperatures and long hikes that start before dawn each day. And so, you know, we wish him well in his uh, winter suffer fest and hope he comes back restored and, of course, you know, free of frostbite. While many podcasts get funding through, you know, sponsors or ad revenue, at Climate Optimus, we rely on listener donations to bring you the content you hear. So if you're a regular listener and value what you get from us, consider a donation that aligns with that value. If you have the means, join us as a monthly sponsor. Even $5 a month makes a real difference. And you know, with today's inflation, that's probably more than most people pay for their uh, morning latte. All you have to do is head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. That's climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. When it comes to moving people efficiently, safely, and reliably, high-speed rail is hard to beat. And while Europe and Asia figured this out a long time ago, climate change presents a unique opportunity for countries like the U.S. to finally take the leap. And so today, we'll be digging into the pros and cons of high-speed rail as a climate solution, questions like where and when does it make sense, how does it fit within the context of other transportation modes like cars, bikes, and planes, and you know what does it look like when it's, when it's done well. But before we uh, talk trains, can you take us through uh, this week's Reason for Hope? Sure, Jason. Mangrove forest loss is rapidly slowing. And mangroves are often called the blue forests, and they not only protect our coastlines from storm, storm surges and sea level rise, but they also have a huge potential to sequester and store carbon. And so there have been conservation efforts under, underway around the globe by an organization called the Global Mangrove Alliance, which is essentially a, a group of nonprofits working to track and halt the uh, destruction of mangrove forests. So in September, they published their latest installment uh, of a study that uses satellite imagery to track the rate of mangrove loss. And, and it looks that um, things are, are, are rapidly slowing. Um, so this is great. Um, it's, it's important for us to be protecting these. And their goal is to protect 80% of the world's mangroves by 2030 and halt the loss of these mangroves through things such as uh, your residential coastal development. So it's it's great that they're finally making a difference. Yeah, it was it was exciting to see. I mean, I guess mangrove loss has been slowing. You know, we talk about deforestation on land and and hope that, you know, places like the Amazon will follow that trajectory. But yeah, it was exciting to see this article and that there really is progress being made on, on the mangrove side of things. Well with that, let's uh, pivot to our guest today. Rick Harnish co-founded the High Speed Rail Alliance in 1993, with a passion for revitalizing the region he grew up and lives in. The Alliance builds the political will for systemic change by advocating for integrated rail and transit networks connected by 200 mile per hour plus high-speed lines. A native of the Chicago area, Harnish has been the High-Speed Rail Alliance's executive director since 2001. His perspective on trains and transport policy has been covered in various media outlets, including Bloomberg, 
the Wall Street Journal, and National Public Radio. Harnish's work is informed by his strong commitment to researching and learning from global best practices, and he draws on a global network of colleagues with expertise in trains and transport policy. And we are uh, excited to have him on the program today. Rick, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thank you very much for having me. So to start things off, when you uh, think about efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Well, you know, what makes me hopeful is that finally there's some real efforts to do something about it. We did have legislation passed, and it's really moved up on people's radar screen. So that's that's very hopeful, and I think that we can really head in a, a different direction before it's too late. So before we dig into uh, high-speed rail, wanted to kind of hear what what your journey was into, well, I guess, executive director role at the High-Speed Rail Alliance. How did you find your way into high-speed rail? So, you know, as a kid, I, I did the thing where trains are cool, planes are cool, cars are cool. Found trains fascinating. I lived in a suburb of Cleveland, and we would take uh, what most people in the States would call a subway train to downtown Cleveland to go shopping. And this was in the you know mid to late 60s. Um, and I loved how downtown was vibrant. It was full of different kinds of people. And the subway actually went into their main train station, which is now, unfortunately, not a train station. It's a, a mall called Tower City. And it was such a beautiful facility and I didn't understand at the time why they were dismantling a lot of the train stuff around it. And, you know, my dad's answer was people don't want to take the train. They, they want to drive. And um, I said, well, that doesn't make sense because, you know, a lot of people act like this, that climate change is a new thing, right? But I remember reading about it this point in the early 70s and getting a little concerned about that. Also, we had the energy crisis. And I was like saying to my dad, well, if we've got this problem with coming climate change and we've got energy crisis, wouldn't it be better if people took the train instead of driving everywhere? And I just started digging into, well, why don't we have trains? And the more I learned about it, you know, we we have this myth of the free economy in the U.S. There never has truly been a free economy. There certainly is not a free economy in transportation or, or land use planning. That's, that's totally driven by federal policies at, at the big level. And so realized, you know, we didn't end up here because that's the way the free market got it. It's because we made decisions that we can change and we can make decide to undo those decisions. And that takes an advocacy organization to help people understand why we need to change that path. And so I started looking for a nonprofit that was doing that kind of work and ran into a group of guys in the early 90s that was putting together that nonprofit. At that time, we were called the Illinois High Speed Rail Association and uh, became one of the founding people to get that organization started and then became full-time executive director in 2001. And we've grown it since then. So, you know, it's, it's really just a long-term interest that grew into 
to a specific job, kind of one of those lucky people that my hobby is also my employment. Yeah, indeed. Not, not many, not many folks can say that I feel like these days. So cool to see it ended up that way for you. Yeah. Well, as we get ready to talk about high speed rail here, I thought it might be good just for context to kind of have you explain to us, you know, kind of the basic definition of high speed rail, you know, what, what qualifies as high speed rail? Well, there's a challenge because high speed rail when done right is completely different than the conventional railroad and especially totally different than what we're used to in the United States when it's done right. So it looks like a separate technology and to the user, it feels like a separate technology. Uh, But in real life, it's just an evolution of the technology we've been using for 200 years. Um, And so our opponents like to say, oh, that's an old technology, right? Well, eating food is an old technology. Making babies is an old technology, but it's still the best way to do it. So when we want to say, though, high-speed rail, we really need to think about high-speed lines, which are tracks where the trains are capable of going 150 miles an hour or faster. High-speed trains are trains that are capable of, on some parts of their journey, going 150 miles an hour. Um, But even if you've got that, it doesn't stand alone. It's part of a huge network where lots of things feed into each other, including buses. So when we say high-speed rail, we mean networks of transportation systems that have high-speed rail, high-speed lines as their foundational core. And, and it sounds like that really all starts with having the, the rail corridor that can support those speeds. In other words, certain types of track, you know, certain types of turns, et cetera, certain clearances. Yeah. So what we believe is that about 80% of the national network, so we should it should be possible to travel anywhere in the country by train and have it be frequent. Now out in Montana, frequent might mean three times a day. Uh, between Chicago and Detroit, frequent means 16 times a day. It should be frequent, it should be on time, and it should be affordable. That should be across the nation. There are key places where if we build new track to go 200 miles an hour, it makes everything else work better. And so that might be Chicago to New York, Chicago to Atlanta, with, with things feeding into that and supporting that and being supported by that. Uh, so in essence, about 80% of the system is rebuilding our existing infrastructure for more frequency and higher speeds. 20% is new tracks where you're going 200 miles an hour. Interesting. So the, so the vast majority is really taking what we have today and making it equipped to be able to support, you know, higher speeds rather than this idea of all kind of greenfield construction where you're having to build entirely from scratch everywhere. Exactly. But, but so the majority of the work is on the existing network and fixing the existing network, but that project actually doesn't work without also building key segments of new high-speed line. So you can't think of one different from the other. They go together. And, and part of our problem is because high-speed rail looks like a separate technology, we want to have it be a separate technology. But really what we need is a national 
railroad program that includes things that make it possible for more people to ship their freight by train, that makes it more people to ride by train. Um, we need a national program to build really exciting railroad infrastructure. So I guess when we're talking about, you know, transportation more broadly, you know, you mentioned the car earlier, you know, we got planes. Um, rail obviously has distinct advantages, one of which I know being its its efficiency as a mode of transportation. Can you talk a little bit about how the efficiency of rail in terms of moving people compares to, let's say, flying a plane or, or driving a car? The key advantage to trains is that it's a steel road with a steel wheel, and it's hard to beat that efficiency. The only way to beat that efficiency is flying in the air. The problem is you lose so much energy getting into the air that it it overcomes it, right? So that steel wheel on steel rail is so efficient that it takes a fraction of the energy that it takes to move that same weight with a rubber tire on an asphalt or concrete road. So that's the core efficiency where the energy savings comes from. The next big advantage is, well, so, you know, you can have trains that carry thousands of people. And in most countries where they have high-speed rail, they have trains that carry 1,100, 1,200 people. And in China, they have trains that go 220 miles an hour that have 1,100 seats and they sell standing room only tickets, right? So a big plane in the United States only has 330 people on it. And there's really limited markets for where those planes make sense. The next thing is because of that steel wheel on steel rail, the wheels are self-guided, which means you can go faster more safely, which means that you can get into the middle of a population center at high speed. You can't do that with a bus. You can't do it with a car and you certainly can't do it with a plane, right? So now you can have this big vehicle that's going across the countryside and picking people up and dropping them off in the middle of town so that it creates an additive effect. So if the train is going from Chicago to Atlanta, let's say, and maybe it's a high-speed train that's making limited stops, so it's, its first stop is Chicago to Indianapolis, some people will get off the train in Indianapolis and some people will get on, right? And so because it's got that additive effect, you add up markets so that you can get to that 1100C train, which becomes very, very cost-effective when you're fr- sharing those trains with other freight trains. Those tracks with other freight trains. So it's it's a really exciting way to build volume and efficiency that you simply can't meet with any other mode. So highlighted, not only it sounds like the, the benefits you say is steel wheel to, to track, but other pieces that really make rail a very efficient form of transportation. Can you talk at all about, you know, kind of the the per passenger efficiency? You know, folks think of, you know, in a car miles per gallon, well, so in Europe, uh, there's a nonprofit that provides a calculator so that you can make an estimate uh, uh, while you're deciding. And it goes from any station in Europe to any station in Europe. 
So, you know, that's part of this issue I talked about earlier about you need a network. It's not just about big city to big city. But we did uh, that comparison on that sheet for Paris to Marseille, which is the distance of L.A. to San Francisco. And keep in mind that, you know, San Francisco and L.A. have multiple airports. But really, when it comes down to it, any of those airport pairs only has um, five to ten flights a day at the most, whereas Paris to Marseille, it's got 30 trains a day. So you've got more options. But in terms of equivalent gallons per passenger to take that trip, they're estimating six gallons by train, um, 10 by car, and 15 by air. Wow. Um, On terms of carbon dioxide, it's 12 units on train and 190 by car and then and 290 by airplane. So it really is a huge, huge difference. Some of that borne by the efficiencies that you talked about, like not just the efficiency of the train itself, but the fact that you can pack a bunch of people on it. The aerodynamics are different. You're not having to lift people up to 30,000 feet with a plane and come back down again. All that stuff sort of adds up to, sounds like a very efficient mode of transportation and being able to use energy more efficiently in turn, you know, in our current world means less carbon and, and, you know, and you also have the benefit with obviously high-speed rail and being able to, I assume in most cases, run it directly electric. Yeah. So, you know, in, in France, the high-speed trains are mostly run by nuclear and it's, you know, based on what's on the primary grid in that location. The other point is that this is a catalyst for something much more important, which is the more that people don't have to have a car, uh, the more that the environment will change. I, I mean, the built environment so that you don't have to use a car. And so if people are coming to visit you by train, visit your city, you don't have to provide a place for them to have a car. So it makes it easier to build a walkable community. Um, And it's also more likely they'll take public transit. And all transit, including airlines, is based on volume. So the more people you've got engaged, the more volume you get, the more more efficient it gets. So, So it's not only the exact trip itself, it's the catalyst for creating a very different built environment that's less energy consumptive, period. So we're talking about all these, these benefits of, you know, high-speed rail, you know, the efficiencies, the fact that you can go from one, the core of one community to another, you know, you've got a bigger slate of sort of times to choose from in terms of when you want to go from point A to point B. What are kind of the the primary barriers? I mean, we look at the U.S., which has very limited um, high-speed rail, or they're you know just starting projects, like in the case of California. What's been the barrier to high-speed rail really taking off, given its advantages? Uh, the chief barrier, really, when it comes down to it, is we decided as a country after World War II, we thought that the future success economically would involve everybody driving everywhere. And we focused on building infrastructure that appeared to make it safe for people to drive. Unfortunately, you know, with with a sad ironicism, it has actually made it less safe to be a human um, in general in the U.S. because because people go so fast on this infrastructure that appears to be safe, we end up killing a lot of people in cars. So we made this decision to invest there 
And don't let anybody tell you that the free market had anything to do with that. The Reason Foundation <laughs> wants you to think that we did, but it didn't. It's complete baloney. We've subsidized cheap housing in the suburbs that's car driven or car focused. And and I don't why know why it became acceptable for us to build houses where you have to get in a car to go buy a gallon of milk. But that's what the law says you have to build today. And we've got regulations in place that say you have to make roads dangerous to walk on. But the good news is we can change that. And there are people working on changing it. And we didn't throw everything away. We've still got these great towns everywhere that still have their their basic bones that we can build upon and use to build more walkable, more healthy, less energy intensive communities. In other words, there was this this hard pivot, it sounds like, to the the world of the car for, you know, various reasons. But we yeah. still have, in many cases, the you know, the corridors or existing rail that connects communities. It's just a matter of, you know, resurrecting or or improving them. Yeah, and we still have the core communities based on railroad stations. Lincoln, Illinois, you know, it's kind of hollowed out, but it's there. It's got it's got the basic bones it needs to become a thriving community. Toledo has these beautiful buildings downtown. But if you put things, if you replaced all of the surfing parking lots with productive uses in these core communities, you could really do something great. But the catalyst for that is fast trains. And, you know, in Japan, they assumed that once they recovered from the, the horror of World War II, that everybody would switch to driving, just like in America. And fortunately for the world, um, there was a guy named Sunji Sogo, who was the uh, president of the Japanese National Railroad. And he spent his post-retirement years, so he took the job after he'd actually retired, pushing Tokyo to Osaka high-speed rail and making that happen. And if he hadn't have done that, we might not have high-speed rail in the world. But it was, it was somebody saying, we're going to make this one thing happen that became a catalyst. And we need that kind of a catalyst in the United States. So, so let's talk about that. I mean, I, it seems like there is momentum in the right direction in the U.S. What's, what's needed to kind of you know, push it over the edge, if you will? I mean, I know there's construction underway in, in California on their high-speed rail. Well, we should think about this as a bunch of saplings and sprouts that are there, but they're going to need attention right? We got to keep the deer from eating them. We've got to make sure they get the right kind of water. We've got to give them the right environment to grow. That's where we are today. So we've got high-speed rail under construction in the Central Valley of California. And um, if you look at a, a map, which is flat and doesn't show you where the mountains are, it's hard to understand why the Central Valley is the best place, but it is in fact the best place in California to start high-speed rail, and it's under construction today. The next best place to start high-speed rail is between Las Vegas and the suburbs of LA. Um, and if you build those two, then the most important project for the West Coast for changing rail travel 
is a tunnel through the Tehachapi Mountains. And if you build Las Vegas to LA suburbs and you build the Central Valley, now you've got the case for building that tunnel. And that's the tipping point on the West Coast. There's funding in place. It's just a little bit, but the funding exists to put some water on some of these other sprouts and get them growing. But what's needed is for people to push their mayors and their state level officials to push state DOTs to actually get projects underway. We need a federal program. We're not there yet. But there is a program that states can go after to get projects in their states going. Local people, individuals need to push their mayors to say, we got to be on this network. And there's a lot of mayors that can be on that. And if they band together, they can get the state legislators doing that and the governors doing that. And if the governors do it, the feds will have to do it. So we really need people at the local level pushing their mayors to getting. So it, it sounds like there is momentum in the right direction. Um, there's still the opportunity to really accelerate that if you're getting these cities, you know, calling to be interconnected, if you will. Well, Rick, I know um, as as a young boy who grew up also passionate about trains, it's exciting to hear you talk about the prospect of, of high-speed rail in the U.S. I know Europe has been a leader for a long time. Japan, you know, I know China's expanding rapidly, but it's exciting to hear that there's you know, there's not just hope, but real momentum for rail to, to take off here. Yeah. And I just want to point out our opponents talk about and in our less optimistic supporters talk about short trips, like 100 to 300 miles. But, you know, China has already connected Omaha, St. Paul, New Orleans, Miami, Boston, and everything in between with high speed rail. Wow. Um, I rode on a high-speed train in Japan last week, the distance of Chicago to Atlanta. So this is not about short-distance trips. This is about connecting the entire country. It's not new high-speed rail infrastructure everywhere, but that high-speed rail infrastructure in critical places is a catalyst for changing everything everywhere. And we're in a really exciting time for this. If people get engaged now, they can really, really make a difference. Well, Rick, thanks for thanks for coming on to Climate Optimists and coming to talk to us about uh, high-speed rail and, and its promise here in the U.S. It's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. So, uh, Thomas, what were your uh, takeaways from the interview with Rick? Well, I guess this, this had all be coming from a, a point of extreme bias because... I'll be frank. I love trains, high-speed trains, slow trains. I love it all. But I think Rick brings up a great point that he touched on a couple of times throughout the interview, and that was that this really is the catalyst for making everything else work. And without the high-speed rail, you will still have the automotive dependence that we have today. So being able to take the cars out of the equation means that you free up space in cities and you can go back to a higher density type urban environment, which is you're more accessible for people on foot, by bicycle, um, by other means of transit, rather than just the automobile. So yeah, it's an unfortunate chicken and the egg situation, but um, 
it sounds like in the US, you finally just need to get it done. So hopefully this this new funding uh, that's come out of the uh, the latest federal bill that has $66 billion for rail in the US really gets some of these projects that have been on the cards in Florida, Texas, and California moving. How about you, Jason? Yes, similar to you, I, I definitely appreciated him pointing out the, you know, sort of the other benefit, right? We focus, or it's easy to focus on this being strictly a transportation solution, but it really is a way to redesign our cities, you know, and and make them much more walkable, more green space. And it's, you know, it's not to say for those car lovers out there that, that the car goes away, but if you don't have as much car traffic, all of a sudden you don't need those three, that three lane road and it can be reduced down to, to just two or even one. Yeah, I, I think the important thing with car lovers is they need to understand that not all people are, right? So if they want to drive their cars and they want roads that are free of other traffic so they can drive their car at will, great. Let's give everybody else an alternative. And and that typically is you know good, effective, efficient public transit and some last mile option, be it foot, scooter, or a bicycle. Yeah, indeed. And, and, you know, we can't underestimate the value of the efficiency piece because, you know, while the focus right now is obviously moving us away from fossil fuels, in the big picture, we need to be getting by with less. You know, we're stretching the world's resources to their limits. And, you know, he used the example of, of traveling from Paris to, to Marseille, which is, you know, similar to kind of the San Francisco to, to LA example in the US. And there's there's always nuances and sort of the the variables and assumptions. But the fact is, with rail, you're talking at least half the energy compared to car, you know, a third of the energy compared to plane. The efficiency piece and the value that brings really can't be, you know, underestimated in the long term as we, you know, we continue to grow as a globe and need to be able to get by with with less. Yeah. And I think too from a um a decarbonization perspective, that's where rail has it all over air travel. Because, you know, you look at the the majority of rail in, in France, which is nuclear powered, right? Catenary structures uh, above the, the train lines so that they can pull power directly off the grid. But I think what you'll find elsewhere in the world is is more reliance on on batteries as, as trains you know, move forward into areas where those catenary structures are not in existence and they'll charge at the station. The weight of batteries is really a non-issue in a train where it is in a you know, an aircraft, of course, and you've got amazing efficiency with batteries now, round trip efficiency of approximately 90%. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're obviously throwing around a lot of numbers here and, you know, that can, can make your head spin, but the the efficiencies really do make it you know uh, sort of the technology of choice and there's a you know an article I read they were talking about China as of 2018 their high speed rail network was transporting twice as many people as their domestic air travel so yeah I mean there's huge potential it's not going to you know eliminate the other modes of transportation but it relieves the congestion in you know in, in all those areas. We saw a similar thing happen in France with the the introduction of the TGV. It basically decimated uh, the domestic airlines in in uh, France. 
you know, it's it's allowed them to have a really low carbon tra- transit option within France, where of course, like virtually none of the flights globally are running on renewables at the moment. Yeah, and I, and I think that's it, that speaks to sort of the sweet spot of trains, which is in that kind of mid distance travel. And you know, in in the U.S., you've got a ton of cities where high speed rail and, and Rick talked about this would be a great fit. And, you know, obviously I think the, when you look at what's going on in California, the big challenge is being able to hold strong on things like, you know, cost and, and travel time and not, you know, caving into, you know, these political demands where somebody, you know, needs a favor and wants a train to pass through their city. It's like, if we're really looking at what's best for everybody, you know, you can't be getting into the game of political favors or it, as California shows, makes your budget two, three, four times more expensive than when you started. Yeah. And you end up losing all the benefits of the high speed rail anyway. So the whole intent of basically displacing the, the short haul air, air travel with the rail ends up not eventuating. You've basically just created a very expensive commuter rail system otherwise. Yeah. On, on the order of, you know, hundred billion as far as California is concerned. But, you know, jokes aside, I hope California is able to, you know, do the things that they need to, to, to bring their projects sort of back on course. The, the good news is there's some other promising areas. I mean, you look at the private rail network called Brightline in Florida, and they started with, you know, sort of a medium speed commuter rail. They're working on a phase two that's going to be kind of quasi high speed that connects Southern to central Florida. You know, there's a project that's on the cusp of happening in, in Texas between Dallas and Houston. So I think I think we just need a, a little push, right? We need a project to be successful to demonstrate for the American people that this is something that's that's doable, that we can replicate the success that's happened other places in the world. I guess to be fair, before we move to sort of what can we do, we probably need to sort of call out the you know, the elephant in the room or the primary critique of high-speed rail, which is which is its cost. And I think a lot of the debate in the U.S. has been misguided in that it only focuses on sort of the upfront cost rather than looking at sort of what does that translate into for a cost per passenger for a specific route. And so, you know, it's easy enough to do that. You just go to a place like Europe or Japan where, you know, they've had high-speed rail alongside things like aviation for a long time. And there's actually a really interesting analysis we'll link on our website that was performed by the news outlet, German news outlet, DW, where they looked at total travel time, sort of door to door, the cost of a ticket as as well as sort of the cost from a climate impact perspective. I wasn't overly surprised, but, you know, when you're traveling, let's say from London to Amsterdam, you know, going by train ends up being basically the same total time and cost a fraction obviously of the environmental impact and you know it's more relaxing it's on time there's more you know travel options you know times a day to leave so anyway we'll we'll link it on our website i won't you know dig in into the numbers but yeah it was a pretty fascinating comparison any additional thoughts on on cost thomas uh look i mean i i, I think the the struggle in the u.s has been the the cost per unit mile or kilometer compared to China. And I think that's part of the reason China's had such a rapid build out in a very short period of time. But I think we also need to keep in mind that it only gets more expensive to do this um, as time progresses, as there's more and more development throughout these existing rail corridors 
um, it makes it harder to implement these large-scale public transit projects. So it's one of those things where I think you've just got to bite the bullet and get at it, get started. Well, I think that's a good segue, Thomas. So I guess the question is, is what can we do? But in the U.S., you know, elected officials at, at the local and national level really need to hear their support for high-speed rail from, from the public. And so the easiest thing to do is to head over to the High-Speed Rail Alliance website. They've got a spot where you can sign a petition that, that calls on Congress to, you know, to build high-speed rail. While you're there, you can sign up to, to join their newsletter and you know, consider a donation to support their work. Because this really is about you know, creating the political will, and, and that starts with people getting involved and, and making their voices heard. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Come back and join us when we release our next episode on November 29th. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Podcast.